Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us many great and precious promises, that through these uh, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. As we prepare to study God's word today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so grateful that we can come together. We can rejoice in song about the birth of our Savior, that it had impact 2,000 years ago and still has tremendous impact around the world today, and that we counted a privilege that we can be a conduit for the proclamation of the gospel. Father, as we come together today, we come to come face to face with the mirror of your word. And we pray that we might not uh, shy away from it, but that we might look deeply into the mirror of your word, and that as it reveals that which we need to apply, that we will have the strength and the courage as believers to do so. For we live in the midst of a horrendous battle that we barely understand, even though we have studied it a lot. The depth of the evil and wickedness that surrounds us in the spiritual realm is beyond our imagination, but we get glimpses of it now and then as we see into some of the uh, really dark spots in human habitations around the world. So, Father, we pray that we might take heart, have hope, and courage as we study your word today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, let's open our Bibles at first to Ephesians chapter 5. Our focus is on the standing against deception. Now, as we have looked at this chapter in the previous weeks, one of the things that that has been, that we've emphasized is that the life of the believer, because he is a new creature in Christ, identified in the book of Ephesians as the new man, this new entity that comes into existence that is called the church. We go back to Ephesians 2, that this is the new man, a new building, a new temple, and that because we are now in Christ, we have a new identity. We're not the old man that we were before we were saved, but we are now, we are now a new man. And so that in this section, starting in the beginning of Ephesians 4, verse 1, where Paul talked about the walk or the life of the believer, and by walking, he includes everything that makes up the life of a believer. He's talking about how we think. He's, think, he's talking about how we live, the decisions that we make. He's talking about how we talk, what we talk about. He's talking about how we act. 
all of that is what it means to walk, and that we are to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And so as we have gone through this, we have recognized that what we find here is a contrast, a contrast between the walk of the unbeliever that is identified as the Gentiles um, that these Ephesians used to be part of, and we've seen that going back to Ephesians 2, there's really three groups of people on the planet today. There are unsaved Jews, there are unsaved Gentiles, and then there are believers in Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile, that are now united together in this unique entity called the body of Christ with this new identity. And so in this section, starting back really in about verse 17 of chapter 4, Paul is giving a contrast between the life and characteristics of the old man, the uh, Gentile unbelievers. And in verse 17, he says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind. So there is this contrast between how the believer should think, act, live, um, emote, everything, and the way that the unsaved Gentile does. And that really comes more into focus in chapter 5, beginning with the command to walk in love. He's further defining what what this walk is all about. And then that's going to be expanded when we get to verse 8, where he says, again, walk. And this time it's walk as children of light. But we live in a world today that is much different than the world that most of us were born into and most of us uh, grew up in. It is a world where we have come to realize that there is much more deception going on around us today than we ever truly imagined. And that relates to the passage that we are in, in verses 6 and 7, where Paul writes, Let no one deceive you with empty words or vain words or futile words. For because of these things, that is, these empty words, For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Now, what's interesting is this passage where it talks about don't be deceived comes at the end of verses 3 through 5 where there's this list of sins with the conclusion that those who uh, do these things will not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And just to remind you of what we've covered in the last two or three sessions to make sure we understand that, that is not talking about salvation and getting into heaven. That entry or the inheritance into the kingdom of God and Christ, talking about the future millennial kingdom, and this has to do with those who have special awards, rewards, privileges in the coming kingdom. Inheriting the kingdom is a term for possessing those additional uh, rewards. Scripture talks about that in many places, and we reviewed those passages talking about the judgment seat of Christ, where there are going to be only believers at the judgment seat of Christ, 
and that there are many who are going to receive uh, awards and rewards on the basis of their faithfulness to the Lord and their service to the Lord. But then it concludes by saying, but there are others who will have no works. Uh, all will be burned up, yet they will be saved as through fire. So you see, they're still saved. They still enter the kingdom, but they are not going to be participating in the additional privileges that go to those who have been faithful. So now we have this exhortation then at verse 6. See, the problem that happens in verses 3 through 5 is really the deception of our own sin natures. Uh, But that deception of our own sin nature is often exacerbated by the deception that is in the world around us. So today, we live in this world that is characterized by all kinds of deception. On the one hand, you'll see people saying that all of these news items and all of these uh, personalities are all uh, fake news and promoters of fake news and ignore them. The other side then reverses the charge to the first group. Everybody says everybody else is just putting out fake news and everybody else is a liar. And uh, we live in a world now where uh, many people are making extreme statements about reality, about history. They're making claims about things that happened in history, and I'm talking about history about 53 days ago on October 7th. They're making claims about history that recent that are completely false. And um, they are making claims, for example, on the side of Hamas, they are charging Israel with genocide, when the fact is, it is the Palestinians who have been fighting. There hasn't been a single war in the history of the nation of Israel since, uh, since and including their war for independence in 1948, where Israel was the aggressor. It was always the Arab nations or terrorists who were the aggressors. Israel has fought every single war, including this one, as a defense. And the argument is, well, they're occupying land given to the Arabs. Well, wait a minute. Let's look at the legal realities here. And you've heard me teach on this in detail. The legal realities are that there never was a state or nation called Palestine. That was a term that was used by the Roman Emperor Hadrian around 135 A.D. in the Second Jewish Revolt because he was so fed up with the, uh, the revolts of the Jews that he wanted to rename everything, and he put a pagan temple on top of every uh, Jewish and Christian site. He wanted to totally eradicate the presence of Jews from the, the, the land, but he never did. There have always been Jews living, uh, living on the land there. And this land was never occupied by, by an Arab power. Muslim powers, yes, but not an Arab power. And I've recently come, uh, Jim sent me a, an article recently that was on American Thinker, so you could probably search for it and find it there. It talks about a book written by a French cartographer at the end of the 1600s. He was also a polyglot. That means he spoke many languages. He went to the area known as, that was part of the Ottoman Empire at that time. Ottomans were not Arabs, they were Turks. And he traveled all through this area of the Middle East that we now refer to as Israel. 
He identified over 2,500 locations. Not a single one of them had an Arab name. They had uh, transliterated the names of Hebrew, uh, Hebrew names into Arabic uh, alphabet, but they weren't, they weren't Arab names. And so there were, he concluded there was no real Arab presence there. There were some nomadic Bedouin tribes that went through. This is echoed by at least three uh, European travelers, one, excuse me, two European, one American, Mark Twain and a couple of Europeans that in the mid-1800s, uh, late-1800s, traveled through the Middle East and said, we went days without seeing anybody. There was no presence there. There was no Arabic presence there. So this is a total lie that there was an Arab presence and that they lived in this land and were productive in this land and somehow it was stolen from them. Second point I want to make is after World War I, when the victors, the allies, had the authority and right by conquest to redraw all of the boundaries in Europe and also all of the boundaries in the Ottoman Empire, which was being broken up because it had become just a failure. And when they redrew those boundaries, that was under international law and was accepted by the League of Nations and by all of the signees to, to these treaties. So that included establishing every border in the Middle East. Even though Turkey might, it might not have affected the northern border, borders of Turkey, it certainly affected their border with Syria. It affected the southern border between Israel and, and uh, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia didn't even exist as a kingdom prior to this. So, so none of that existed. It was just a region in the Ottoman Empire uh, called Syria-Palestine, uh, which went back to the Roman designation from, um, from Hadrian. And yet, what do you find today? You find these Arabs claiming they've stolen our land. No, it was never yours. In fact, in San Remo in 1922, the League of Nations uh, confirmed uh, both the conclusions of San Remo, which drew, redrew the borders in the Middle East, but also the British mandate, which included in its prelude the exact verbiage, the original verbiage of the Balfour Declarations, which declared that this historic land of Israel was for the habitation, the homeland of the Jewish people. But you're told other things. It's ignored. History is ignored. The law's ignored. It's ignored by some Israeli leaders. But that's what the law was. That's international law. It's never been rescinded. It is still the law on the book. So if we say that we're a people that are law-abiding and that we believe in the rule of law, then why do we ignore law? But these are lies. These are just some of them. You also have people who lie about, well, I can make decide my own gender all kinds of false views of reality. And this idea of man determining his own reality had its start where? Had its start in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent appears to uh, Eve and deceives her. According to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, Eve was deceived, and it doesn't say that Adam was deceived. She's totally deceived by the serpent. And this is the um, actually Satan, 
He is the fallen angel that is described in Isaiah chapter 14 as Halel ben Shahar, that in the Latin that became Lucifer. It means the shining one, the son of the dawn. And he was the greatest and most intelligent, most beautiful of all of the angels that God had created. But he wanted to rewrite history and make himself out to be God. And so this is the beginning of sin. It's grounded in arrogance, where the creature wants to be identified as the creator. So at the very root of all deceptions, and we're all involved, you and I are all involved in self-deception to degrees that we're embarrassed to admit to even to ourselves. But at the heart of all all self-deception is arrogance, and the idea that this limited, finite, let's face it, somewhat of a um, weak-looking creature compared to some of the other creatures God created, that this rather impotent-looking human being uh, thinks that he he knows more and can do more than the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, immutable God who created the heavens and the earth. Lies have always been part of human history. There's always been the problem with deception. Today, it seems like, at least in Western culture, they're reaching a new level. But if you were to go back to uh, the 1920s in Lenin's Soviet Union or the 30s in Stalin's Soviet Union or to go to the late 40s and 50s in Mao Zedong's China, you would find just as great a deception going on there as you have here. Deception is often the environment in which human beings live. And these lies have always been there. And as we uh, look at human history as it's described in the Bible, what has happened is that as we declare ourselves to be uh, able to act like God, we want to redefine everything. And so we believe the lie that we can determine right and wrong for ourselves. Uh, We believe the lie that God is really incapable or ignorant and that we actually know better than God knows. We believe the lie that we can create our own reality. We can determine our own destiny. We can determine our own origin, that we we were not created by an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, righteous, and just God who loves us beyond anything that we can imagine. We're just an accident that descended from a chain of accidents, and we trace our lineage back through various uh, monkeys and apes, back to some invisible or visible little blob of protoplasm that was accidentally hit with a bolt of lightning and somehow moved from organic to in, I mean to from inorganic to organic so we are creatures who think we can be the creator now the focus in our section of Ephesians is in the second part we have to remember this that there's three sections we've gone through this is lesson 216 we spent 215 hours plus studying Ephesians. I think the longest book I've gone through was maybe Revelation, about 230 lessons. 
we only got six chapters in Ephesians. I didn't teach Ephesians until I taught this series. I often wondered when I was young, high school, college, I would hear pastors and I would read dispensationalists who would say the greatest New Testament book for us to understand is Ephesians. And I would read it and go, hmm, I'm missing something. I was. I think this is, I agree, this is the most significant, I would say, book in relation to the Christian life and understanding who we are that we have in the New Testament. Now, it doesn't stand alone. It is, um, it, it, I think that it fits well with the other uh, prison epistles, especially Colossians and Philippians, as I have pointed out. And it addresses the wealth of the believer because God has given us so much. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, Ephesians 1, 3. And I challenge you to go home and write 20 down based on Scripture. We should know this. That's who we are. Those are our divine assets. And it moves from talking about what God has given us in chapters 1 through 3 in our new identity in the church to the difference that that should make in how we live. So we go from the wealth of the believer to the walk of the believer, and then when we get to the end of this section, it's going to talk about the warfare of the believer. And that's important because we get a hint of that warfare in this passage because of its warning against uh, deception. And so we look at this epistle of just six chapters, and it's like the difference between going to the grocery store and getting concentrated orange juice and going to some uh, uh, convenience store and getting their highly diluted uh, orange juice that comes out of a spigot. This is thick stuff, and it's important for us to be able to un pack it all and to understand what it's talking about. So this passage is still talking about how we are to walk. It comes between walk, the command to walk in love and the command to walk as children of light. But what in walking involves is avoiding deception. And to avoid deception, you have to believe that there is absolute truth and that you can know absolute truth, and that you must learn absolute truth. To avoid deception, you have to have a framework or a guideline or a frame of reference by which to judge and evaluate everything. And if you think that resides between your ears, unless you've been studying the Bible for 30 or 40 years, then you're self-deceived. That's exactly what Eve did. She gets offered the fruit, and instead of going and asking God whether or not the serpent was telling her the truth, she relies on her own resources. And that was in perfect state. That's what led to her sin. We're fallen and corrupt and spiritually dead before we're saved, and, and we think that we have what it takes to be able to evaluate the claims of deception. Well, that's self-deceived. So we're in this section starting in Ephesians 4.17. This I say, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And then in Ephesians 4.17, he expands in contrast. He says, 
no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind because their understanding is darkened, having been alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Now, here's an application point for you. The next time you're watching Fox News or World Net Daily or ABC, and God knows you already know this for CNN and a few of the others, but just remember that with few exceptions, the person that is telling you how you should think about the things that are going on in the world has, has a mind of futility. His understanding is darkened. He is alienated from the life of God uh, because of ignorance and the blindness of his heart. Now, I know there are exceptions. There's a few I know on Fox News who are solid believers and that they are uh, somewhat serious about their Christian life. I don't know how much uh, accurate understanding of Scripture they have, but they're certainly conservative in their view of the significance of Christianity. So the warning here is that the Gentiles walk in the futility of the mind, the unbeliever, and this is the Greek word I have in the box up on the screen, matayotes, which relates to something that is empty or purposeless. Their thinking is empty and purposeless. It doesn't matter how many PhDs they have. It doesn't matter how many Nobel Peace Prizes they have won. It doesn't matter how many uh, uh, tech companies they have uh, started. It doesn't matter what their skills are with the computer or with any other technological thing. It's Their thinking is futile. It is purposeless because they are spiritually dead and they don't have a framework of truth. So related to that description of the culture in our passage, Ephesians 5, 6, Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Now, this is a synonym for matayotes. It's the word kinos, which means empty, foolish, worthless, or vacuity. It means that this people are thinking totally divorced from reality and divorced from truth. Now, they may have stumbled on an acorn now and then. My father's, uh, one of his favorite sayings was, even a blind hog finds a couple of acorns every now and then. But that doesn't mean that they understand the, the, the framework of truth. Colossians 2.8 uses this same word in a similar context where Paul warns the Colossians. Now, he wrote Colossians and Ephesians pretty close to one another, and he told the Colossians, and Colossae isn't that far from Ephesus, he said, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men pure human viewpoint, pure paganism, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. So when we look at going back to 4.17, where he talks about the rest of the Gentiles, remember there's three groups of people in the world today. There are unsaved Jews, unsaved Gentiles, and saved Jews and Gentiles who are Christians and in the body of Christ. But unless you're letting your mind be transformed by renewing it in the Word, Romans 12, 2, 
then you may still be operating on your values, on the philosophy of life that you had before you were saved. And so you're still thinking like a pagan. You still have values of a pagan. You're still making decisions like a pagan. And you're still talking and acting like a pagan. When you have all of these different descriptions in here related to uh, things like foolish talking and coarse jesting back in verse 4, uh, back in the uh, chapter chapter 4, verse 29, corrupt word. All of this has to be understood with this contrast that Paul has been setting up here since 425, that, that we have put off lying with the old man, and we are to speak the truth with the neighbor. It's It's the word of God. It's talk. Our conversation needs to be informed by biblical truth. And that's what makes a difference. We're not talking a lie. It's not a myth. It's, it's not a legend. It's none of these things. So when we get down to 4, um, let me go, the lies people believe, the first lie, the first lie, what we saw in Genesis chapter 3. It's actually, it's the lie that Satan told himself in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13, 14, 15, that even though he knew he was a creature and therefore limited, even though his abilities were far beyond anything we can possibly imagine, they were still finite. But he thought he could be equal to or superior to the creator of all things. And so there's that denial of the creator Redeemer God of the Bible, that he doesn't exist. And so the scripture, for example, in Colossians uh, 2, 8, that I just mentioned, scripture talks about the fact that in replacement of the information about the God of the Bible, you have innumerable philosophies and religions that have developed down through the centuries. And the Apostle Paul was familiar with many of them, and he describes all of them by this word that means that they were fruitless, empty, vacuous nonsense. He would not be politically correct today. He would not make it very far in the initial freshman semester because of the way he thought. He would be immediately ostracized. But you reflect upon the history of the world. Go back and look at, if you've ever studied them, the thinking of Aristotle, Plato, Confucius, Buddha, Zoroaster, and they are viewed by men as having a level of intelligence and understanding and perspicuity that Paul is just calling absolute nonsense. You look at the great religions that developed in places like China or India and other other religions that I think were deeply demonic in Africa, the uh, native tribes in America, even the ancient tribes, tribal groups in, um, in Europe, were all deeply influenced by demonism. Then you have the development of more advanced forms in a relative sense. 
of these uh, mythologies among the Greeks and the Romans. Then you get the horrible deceptions of, of Islam under Muhammad and its twin um, Mormonism under Joseph Smith. And add to that the musings and peregrinations of the Jewish rabbis. And then the absolute beginnings of the collapse of Western civilization with the Enlightenment thinkers like Descartes and Leibniz and Spinoza ending up with the uh, speculations and rejection of the possibility of knowing truth by Hume and Kant, which is what laid the foundation for where we are, are today. All of these things produce a mass of deception so that people are confused. They say, well, how do you know truth? And they all start with this basic principle that the creator, redeemer, God of the Bible does not exist. And so all of these different philosophies of atheism, agnosticism, all the way to the uh, paganism of these other groups that I mentioned, that all of this is a substitute because they do not want, they have consciously, that's what Romans 1 says, they have consciously rejected the God of the Bible because they want to worship the creation rather than the creator. So the second point is that with no creator, redeemer, God, human beings are free to guess and to create their own reality. We're just going to make it up as we go along. And that's what they have done from the beginning, is that they have made up their own religious systems. They think that human beings are just cosmic accidents. They make up their own rules of right and wrong, which differ from one group to another. They want to make up their own identities and their own gender identity, thinking that they can change what is actually a physical reality, not a uh, psychological reality. They want to make up their own facts about history and events, and they think that we're actually powerful enough to change the climate. And more and more discoveries are made all the time that demonstrate that the impact that our actions, even with 7 billion, almost 8 billion people on the planet have on the uh, atmosphere and on the environment is negligible. Yet they're going to impose all kinds of laws on us and force us to buy things we don't want to buy uh, because they believe that it will somehow save the planet. So that we be they believe these deceptions that humans can change their nation, their nature rather, Second, that humans who are inherent, wait a minute, I'm going to start over. Humans who are inherently corrupt can bring in a perfect world. Their presupposition is man's basically good. That's what separates conservatives from liberals, according to Thomas Sowell. They believe humans can determine their own truth and that humans can deny audio-video evidence of mass murder, rape, murder and torture of babies, infants, the rape of women, torture, mutilation, and murder of thousands of innocent civilians. And I'm not just talking about what happened to Israelis on October the 7th. Anyone in Gaza who didn't agree with Hamas was tortured and mutilated and butchered 
by Hamas just as much as those Israelis were. Because they can't stand for anybody to disagree with them. And so that people who support Hamas, 95% of those interviewed in the West, so-called West Bank, which is biblical Samaria, agreed that what Hamas did was a good thing, even though they're not Hamas. Because Arabs are taught from infancy, the babies are taught from infancy to hate Jews, to live for the sole purpose of being able to murder a Jew. And then they could go as a martyr to their 72 virgins in heaven. So the beginning of lie goes to Isaiah 14, 13 and 14, where Lucifer, Halel bin Shahar, says in his heart, I will ascend into heaven, the five I wills. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. This is Mount Zaphon in, um, in Syria, which is comparable to Mount Olympus in Greece. It was the abode of the gods and goddesses, which are clearly identified as demons by Moses back in Deuteronomy. He said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, another reference to the angelic hosts, and I will be like the Most High. See, it's a creator-creature denial. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen and 15 tells us more about Satan. He says, And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if, he, if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Satan is not some red-skinned creature with horns and a pointed tail. He goes around, and he is the most beautiful and attractive and winsome person that you could ever imagine. And he is the master of deception. He is the master counterfeit. And he blinds the minds of unbelievers and believers, I think, in some ways, to the truth, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. I think there are a lot of believers in rebellion to the authority of God's word that are also blinded by Satan. And we're seeing a culture that is formerly was a culture of light that is being transformed into a culture of darkness. But we're reminded of who he is, John 8, 45. Jesus said to the Pharisees of all people, religious, moral, righteous do-gooders, brilliant men, Hard workers. Every Pharisee had to have a regular job, had to have a trade. You are of your father, the devil. Oh, that made them happy. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Over and over again, the Bible understands there is absolute truth. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. That's a strong, absolute statement. No truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Satan is the father of all deception. Doesn't matter how nice 
someone looks or how well they've been educated, if they are deceiving the public, they are following their father, the devil. In Revelation 12, 9, we're told that the great dragon was cast out. This happens midpoint in the tribulation in the future. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. That's his character. He is the great deceiver. So this is the foundation, the denial of the existence of the creator as the Bible describes him. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Notice it's a present tense, but it's not a narrow present. You've got various nuances to present tense. You've got now, right now. And then you have a present tense that's covering this day or this week. And then you have a present tense that is just communicating a timeless reality. And the timeless reality since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden is that the wrath of God is revealed. It's manifest. It's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It is the wrath of God is a temporal topic. This isn't talking about the the um, uh, eternality of punishment in the lake of fire. Wrath of God is always a temporal concept. It's within the boundaries of the fall of man and the great white throne judgment. That's when the wrath of God takes place. Now, this is important because in a in Ephesians 5, 6, and 7, it tells us that um, at the end that those who are deceived by empty words because of these things, the empty words, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So wrath of God is talking about divine discipline and divine judgment uh, within history. And that's the foundation of all of this deception is the denial of the existence of the creator, redeemer God in the Bible. So in Ephesians 5, 6, Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words. These are words that are futile, that are worthless, that are not do not conform to reality or the truth. And so when he says words, this refers to speeches. It refers to arguments. It refers to text messages and memes. It refers to sermons from multiple so-called Christian pulpits, social media posts, uh, philosophy, sociology, psychology, history, English, political science, economics, lectures. All are based on pagan presuppositions. And although there may be a lot of truth there because Satan is an angel of light, there's enough uh, poison in there to destroy the thinking of your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren if they are not taught the truth from God's Word. And so this is the warning that we are surrounded by a culture of Gentiles, and this was true at the time of Christ, it was time true at the time of Paul, and it's true now, and that we are not to be deceived. So that the only clue to avoiding deception is that you have to know the Word of God inside and out. It's not an option. It wasn't an option 20 years ago or 30 years ago, but today you will be run over by tanks, spiritual tanks, political tanks, economic tanks, if you don't know what the Bible says. 
if you haven't internalized the Word of God so that you can think according to truth and reality. Because in your careers, I'm, I, somebody always reacts to this. I hear stories again and again from people who are working for some company and the policies that are being handed down through human resources are anti-Christian. You have to conform. You have to be woke. Now, some companies are waking up, but a lot of them aren't. And maybe you're in a position, wherever it is that you work, where those pressures are not coming to bear on you, but you better be aware that they're there and that they could be pressuring you. And you have to figure out how you're going to handle that. Uh, One option is that you can talk to people, and sometimes that works, and you can find a way out. Sometimes uh, there are people in positions of power who just don't realize the, the, the impact of these policies, and you can reason with them. Other times you cannot. Sometimes you have to make a choice and you have to decide, well, I can't work here anymore because I am violating my conscience because they will not let me do what I believe to be the right thing and they are forcing me to enforce policies that I believe to be destructive and anti-biblical. So we have to learn, you have to learn to think. You have to internalize the word of God. Paul describes the Gentiles of his time and Ephesus in Ephesians 2.2, 2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Now that phrase is used just a few chapters back, but at the end of verse 6, he says, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, those who are living according to the pagan anti-God worldview. That's who the sons of disobedience are. The term is used for unbelievers, and the unbelievers are equated in the coming verses with darkness, and that describes who they are and who we were before we were saved. But as believers, we now are children of light, but we can still walk in darkness, imitating the sons of disobedience. Romans 1.17 says that the wrath of, uh, for in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. This is continuous. Since the Garden of Eden, God has been giving the gospel. And the wrath of God is revealed. And this is a middle voice, which confuses a lot of people. But that basically, in one of the primary uses is that it's emphasizing the subject. It's not reflexive. God is not revealing it back to himself. That's the simple way of looking at a middle voice. But often it is used in an intensive way to emphasize what the subject is doing. God is revealing himself. So the second point, I'm going to run through these a little quick because we're running out of time. Uh, The devil's original sin was arrogance expressed in his denial of the creator-creature distinction, as we've seen. We do the same thing. We elevate the creature, ourselves, over the authority of the creator God. The third point is that in the same way, all views of ultimate reality, whether it's atheism, agnosticism, pantheism, panentheism, materialism, polytheism, limited God, open theism, Islamism, Buddhism, or liberal Christianity, all at some point invalidate the creator-creature distinction. They've been deceived, and they're living by a lie. Fourth, this is accomplished and promoted through the various means of communication. Words, whether text, emails, memes, media, TV, literature, 
Now, I'm not condemning the memes. I'm not saying that that you shouldn't read or you shouldn't look at memes or you shouldn't uh, watch videos on YouTube at all. That, but be aware that they are, those things in social media are used for very evil purposes. But remember, God created language, but Satan's the one who's come along and perverted language so that he can develop an army of humans to go against God. He has perverted language for his own nefarious purposes. So fifth point, Scripture says the knowledge of God is clearly revealed both external to man so that he observes that reality, but also internally through God's making it plainly evident to them in their souls. So there's not a single real atheist on the planet. To say there is means you're saying God's a liar. They're lying to themselves, but deep, deep, deep in their soul, they know God exists, and they're in rebellion against him. Romans 1.19 says, because what may be known of God is manifest where? In them, inside them, in their soul. For God has shown it to them. See, that's external. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, I just love this phrase, his invisibles are clearly seen. That grabs your attention because it seems contradictory. But God says, you look around at the visible things and you must come to certain conclusions about my existence. But what happened is what we read in 121, that although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. Notice, we we have this also emphasized here in um, verse 4 of of Ephesians 5.4 that in light of all this foolish talking and everything else, uh, that's not fitting, it's not edifying, but rather you should be giving thanks. But that isn't what characterizes the, the unbeliever. They became futile in their thoughts. They weren't thankful. They became futile. Again, that the verb here of matayotes, it's futile, it's empty. The result of this is described in Romans 1, 24 to 25. Therefore, God also gave them up. He said, you want to act that way? Go ahead. I'll pull back the restraints. I'll let you go to the end of the rope and then some. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. They denied the creator-creature distinction, who is blessed forever. Seventh, as a result of that rejection of truth, verses 26 and following explain the consequences, which are now evident all around us in our culture. Social pressure is mounting for us to validate these deceptions. Romans one twenty six. for this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Now, you'll hear from the LGBTQ crowd that the Bible never condemns homosexuality. Well, that word homosexual wasn't coined until the late 19th century. But if this isn't a description of homosexuality, I don't know what would be.
They burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Verse 28, God gave them over to a debased mind, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. These are the same kind of list that we have in Galatians 5 for the works of the flesh and in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9, 10, and 11, and in our passage in Ephesians 4. This is what happens when people rebel against God. Our eighth point is that the devil hates the truth. He hates those who hold to the truth. He hates those who want to defend the truth. He hates you with a passion. So how are you going to stand for the truth? What are we supposed to do? His desire is to force everybody to conform to his deceptions. So when we answer the question, how do we fight to this? We have to recognize we're not to be partners with them, not to be partners with that, what's going on in the culture. So I have three basic points of conclusion. First, we have to know and believe that there's only one truth, and that's the truth revealed in the Bible. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them by means of your truth. Your word is truth. There is absolute truth. We must know it, and we must believe it. Second, we must read, learn, meditate, memorize, reflect, study, and internalize God's Word. It has to transform us, Romans 12, 2, by the renewing of our mind. It's not an option. It's more important today than it ever was, and it was always supposed to be your number one priority. Psalm 119.11, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. We have to hide it in our heart. And third, for all of us, we can no longer live as if the transformational events of the last few decades, socially, politically, and religiously, have not taken place. Too many of us, myself included, live in a nice little comfortable bubble. We don't get out there and, and with the crowds and as much as maybe we did when we were in our uh, college years or when we were in our 20s. But we have children and grandchildren to do, and we need to prepare them. We have a guy sitting here who's been in part of this church for many years, and he's a police officer, and he's out there seeing all kinds of stuff all the time. Ephesians 6, 10, and 11 and following says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Not be strong in your own education or anything else, but in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We're to put on the whole armor of God. Why? So we can go out and fight the devil? No, so we can stand, which is a position of defense, stand against the wiles of the devil. In verses 13 and 14, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore. What do you think he's talking about? Standing firm. Three times he mentions that in these two verses. I'm going to close with this. Paul warned Timothy, but know this, that in the last days, the last days of Israel, the last days of the church. 
well, this is the last days of the church. How long have we been in the last days of the church? Well, since the first century, because we don't know when it's going to end. But know this, in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, totally self-absorbed. You think that describes our culture? Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Think that's happening today? I remember the first time I heard a pastor read this passage in about 1967. I said, that describes my generation. It's worse now. Unloving, or disobedient parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And I would say that on this last phrase, that this applies to many who are probably believers but are not in obedience to the word of God, that they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. And we're to turn away from such people. There's only one thing we can do now. We can vote. Please do. It's early voting right now for the city of Houston. But what's going to turn the country around is going to be an internal transformation. And that only comes by, number one, people getting saved. And then, number two, people have to grow in their knowledge of the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And believers have to get really serious, ten times more serious about their spiritual life because we don't know what's coming. Would you have expected five years ago to see crowds of American college students in, on anti-Semitic destructive riots in Washington, D.C., in New York, and in Los Angeles, and other places? We would not. What's going to happen? What do you think is going to happen in five years? Whatever you think will happen in five years, it will probably be worse. We have to prepare for it. Well, what happens if that doesn't happen? Great, you will have grown to spiritual maturity in those next five years, and it's just going to have a tremendous impact on the rest of your life. It's always a win-win when the options are just grow to maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our goal, with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we're thankful that we have this opportunity to be reminded of the deception that is around us and how subtle it is, and how seductive it is, and how it has penetrated every nook and cranny of our culture, and that we need to stand firm against it. And the only way to stand firm is to stand firm in your word, put on the full armor of God, and to internalize your word. We need to really rethink our priorities, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we spend our energy to see how much uh, more we can spend on focusing on our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. For we have who knows what kind of tsunami coming around the corner, and we have to be prepared. And when we have our solid foundation in your word, no matter what happens, we have hope and joy and stability. And with you on our side, nothing is impossible. And we can face anything that comes. 
and still have that joy and peace and uh, stability that you promised. So, Father, we pray for that. We pray that if there's anyone here now or anyone listening online that uh, has never trusted Christ as Savior, that they might recognize that that's the only hope. Uh, without Christ, there's no hope. There's no eternal life. But with Christ, there's hope. There's eternal life. There's joy inexpressible. And there's a wonderful opportunity to serve God and see him work in our lives today. And there's that free gift of eternal life. So, Father, we pray for those who need to hear the good news of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And, Father, we pray for us that we might continue to desire to be steadfast, holding firm to your word, word of life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.